I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 6. Uh, Tonight we're going to be reading verses 10 through 17 of Ephesians 6. And although the, the name of the sermon is put on the whole armor of God, specifically we're going to be addressing the issue of spiritual warfare uh, in its entirety. Uh, and I, before I preach, though, I'd, I'd like to uh, point out to you, I want you to note here, before I read this, how Paul addresses the church in Ephesus. Now, keep in mind that uh, in chapter 5, at the end of chapter 5, he addressed husbands and wives, and then in 6, he began to address children and parents, and then masters and servants. So he's been addressing ordinary Christian families, families like our own, within the church. But I want you to take particular notice of how he addresses them, the words that he uses, the mannerisms that he uses, because he begins to address the members of the church, the ordinary families, the you and me's, like a general exhorting troops, like he, the way that a general would exhort them in the midst of a desperate fight. That's the way he's really going to be addressing not just them in their own age, but us today. So, uh, but before we read the word of the Lord, let's go to the Lord of the word and let's ask for his blessing. God, our Father, it is ironic that I'm about to preach on the subject of spiritual warfare because we know that the very act of preaching is spiritual warfare. In the next few minutes, uh, the devil, the world, the flesh, they'll do everything that they can to pull our attention away from you and your word. They'll make us sleepy. They'll make us think of other things. They'll get us attached to our phones. They'll do anything that they can to make sure that the seed falls on the pathway so that the birds can eat it up. But we pray, O Lord, that you would thwart our great enemies and that instead you would make it possible for the word to enter in by the ear gate and then go down to our hearts and produce that harvest that I know you want. Help us then, O Lord, to be attentive and help us, O Lord, to remember you are speaking to us in this word. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen and amen. Reading then Ephesians 6 and then starting with verse 10. This is the word of the Lord. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. It uh, happened in the last century, so I, I, I hope you will forgive me if I've forgotten. Uh, I think I was in sixth grade at the time, and it was, uh, it was a career day. And I remember that the parents of members of my class, I was going to a Catholic school at the time in northern New Jersey, uh, some of their parents came in to talk about what they did, their various careers, and there were various people there. The only three that to this day I can remember were a nurse, a firefighter, and a policeman. Now, the nurse uh, uh, enthralled us because she brought along her stethoscope, and we got to listen to each other's heartbeats. 
so that was that was sort of cool. And then the firefighter brought out, he had his oxygen equipment, you know, and he had his giant jacket, his helmet, which I remember I couldn't even, it, you know, my entire head was, was consumed by it. And all of it smelled vaguely like smoke, which was sort of cool, too. And then these boots that came up to about here on me and, and stuff like that. And then the policeman came in. And this, keep in mind, this is back in the 20th century when they could still do cool things in school. And he showed us his gun, which I now know is a 38 caliber K-frame police special. I, I did not know at the time. It was just a really cool gun. Uh, and, um, and then he had a duffel bag, and he took out of it this incredibly bulky vest. And he invited us to all try it on. And we didn't. We're like, oh, you know, the little sixth graders. Uh, and, he, you know, he's asking, what is this? And I'm the know-it-all. I'm like, it's a bulletproof vest. It's a bulletproof vest. You know? and, oh. and he's like, that's right. And the girls tried it on. They're like, eh, why do you have to wear something this heavy? And he said, I'll tell you. And he went back into the duffel bag. And he took out another bulletproof vest. Okay. And this time he put it on a little girl. And then he, he turned her. And uh, he pointed to a little hole that was right here. And then he fished in his pocket, and he took out a deformed bullet, and he put it in the hole. So it was right there. And everybody's eyes are like, is that a bullet? And they're like, and he's like, yes, that's a bullet. And they're all like, were you wearing that? And he said, no, it was a friend of mine. But he said, whenever we visit schools, I take along this bulletproof vest with me to show the children. Because I always get the question, why would you wear something that heavy all day long? And he said, it's because this, this vest was designed to stop bullets that otherwise would kill you. And he said, we not only give it to you know, the kids to see, but we also use it when rookies join the department to remind them why they're wearing this bulky thing that makes them sweat during the summer. And we were like, oh, big eyes, you know. Okay, now we understand, and so on. Now, when I tell people that story, I've... I've, I've I think I've used that anecdote maybe twice in my entire career as a preacher. Most people, you know, listening to it, they, they'll listen, they'll nod at you sagely, and they'll say, well, yes, yes, because they're thinking a policeman is in danger every day. I could have used, obviously, in this community, the, uh, the example of an infantryman and the body armor that he has to wear. He has to put on his body armor and make sure his rifle is in working order prior to entering into battle because he is in grave danger and would be at a definite disadvantage if he did not have them with him. And, and people would, again, nod and they'd say, yes, yes, we see that. It makes sense. But when I start talking about spiritual warfare... When I talk about the, the forces that are arrayed daily against the Christian, and I don't mean the worldly forces that are arrayed against the Christian. I don't mean, you know, the, the various uh, groups, uh, people uh, against religion groups and, and so on who are constantly struggling to try to snuff out the Christian faith or those within the political spectrum who absolutely detest Christianity and stuff like that. What I am talking about when I speak of spiritual Warfare is that the actions even of those evil men are directed by evil spiritual powers. And that what we witness on earth when we hear about these cases, like you remember in your, uh, your worship folder, we read about this, this Christian teacher in England who can no longer teach in the United Kingdom because he said to a group of girls, well done girls, and one of the members of that group identifies as a boy, even though she's a biological girl. And because he would not go along with the farce 
of calling a girl a boy and denying the truth of what God teaches in his word, he has lost his ability to teach. But why did that happen? It wasn't, it wasn't simply worldly forces at work. What, what's happening there and what we're witnessing on earth is what Abraham Kuyper rightly called the backlash of the spiritual struggle. But when I talk about that often, people, Christians, will look at me in the same way as if I had told them, remember to secure your wallet with a magic string so the leprechauns can't steal it. You understand? They're after your money all the time. You know, if I said that, they'd look at me and they'd, they'd giggle politely and so on. Well, often when I'm talking about spiritual warfare, people do exactly the same thing. Even Christians fall prey to that. I can't tell you how often I've encountered Christians who are willing to fight that they have to, uh, who are willing to admit rather and accept that they have to fight every day against first their own sinful nature, the depravity that remains within them. They have to, they have to keep that struggle that we were talking about before in Romans 7. They have to keep that at bay. Then the temptations of the world the way it's constantly trying to draw Christians by, by these counterfeits into terrible sins, or the way that they have to deal with their own psychological problems and hang-ups and, and the spiritual issues that deal, they deal with on, on a regular basis. But when you start talking even to Christians about the devil and demons, they kind of laugh nervously. They're like, yeah, the, the demons... Men, men have no difficulty, I tend to find, believing in good spiritual powers. They'll believe in angels, for instance. They'll believe in heaven and so on. God is okay, and we believe in Jesus and the Holy Spirit. But the devil and demons actively at work in the world, affecting what goes on here and now? Surely not. But brothers and sisters, what Paul tells us is surely yes, that is actually going on. And we are foolish if we do not acknowledge it. Now, in his wonderfully humorous little book, how many of you have read, incidentally, The Screwtape Letters? How many? How many? Okay, it's one of the funniest Christian books that was ever produced, and one of the most insightful as well. In it, we have two demons conversing, a senior demon and a lesser demon, and uh, the, the, the entire dialogue is how best to cause this, uh, this man that the demon uh, thinks he's overseeing and so on, uh, how he is going to bring him to hell how he's going to cause his, his soul to be damned. Um, I don't want to give more away. It's already Andy Ruin's books uh, all the time. So. But what C.S. Lewis points out in the Screwtape Letters is that the devil's greatest victory was simply to make us think he didn't exist. No, why is that? Well, it's because a sensible man doesn't actually worry about leprechauns stealing his wallet, does he? And why doesn't he worry about the leprechaun stealing his wallet? And the answer is, of course, because there's no such thing as a leprechaun, and we all know it, right? So no defensive measures need be taken for the little people. And he certainly doesn't take pains against philandering leprechauns. Why would he, after all? So why would someone who doesn't believe in the devil take the trouble to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil? Do you see what I mean? If you don't think you need protection because he doesn't exist, you are not going to listen to the exhortation no matter what. And as I was preparing to, to preach this sermon and writing about the various parts, originally I started out and I was going uh, to, you know, very quickly through the initial stage, and then I wanted to talk more about the actual items in the full armor of God. And I decided, no, I'm going to split this into two sermons. I'll talk about the, the items in the full armor next week because I... 
I, I realize that it's useless to talk about those items in the full armor of God unless you understand why you need those items, unless you understand why you need the full armor of God. I mean, I could spend all day talking about what Paul means by the shield of faith, but unless you believe that there is a wicked one, that he has fiery darts, and that he is likely to fling them at you, then you aren't going to take up that shield of faith. It simply isn't going to strike you as necessary, and as a result, you are going to be unarmored, and you are not going to have the sword of the Spirit in your hands because you don't think you're actually engaged in that form of warfare. You see, unless you really have that, that big-eyed, that big, round-eyed, small kid apprehension and appreciation of the reality of the bullet, then you aren't going to see the value of the heavy bulletproof jacket. If there is no such thing as a bad guy and a bullet, then we don't need bulletproof jackets. But there are bad guys, and there are bullets, and so policemen do need bulletproof jackets to this day. And there is an evil one, a wicked one, your enemy, the devil, and he does have fiery darts, and he will fling them at you. So yes, you do need to take up every single day the shield of faith. So I want to speak to you today about spiritual warfare because I believe that most Christians at this point in time have forgotten that they're actively involved in it. You are all, everybody that I am speaking to right now is in one sense or another engaged in spiritual warfare. And they're engaged in a spiritual warfare that doesn't happen once in a while. It's not intermittent, okay? It's not like a war that starts and then stops and then starts and stops. Rather, it's a war that is ongoing, that's constant, and will continue on until Jesus returns. So I want to talk to you about the reality of that warfare, and I want to talk to you about all the dimensions of that spiritual warfare. Obviously, this is not going to be an exhaustive sermon, but I want to get at, at certain key points. Now, spiritual warfare occurs at the personal, the family, the congregational, the denominational, the national, and the worldwide level. So remember, if you believe, and I hope you all do, if you believe the Bible is the word of God and that it is true in what it teaches, then you must accept its testimony that you live amid a great battle in the heavenlies that has its effects here on earth in your own lives. And incidentally, if at this point in the sermon you're drifting off or you're looking at your phone, you are actually losing that battle right now. <laughs> You are being tempted to go in the wrong direction. I watch that happening every single day, and I understand this isn't simply, you know, it's not a character problem. It's, a, it's an effect of the spiritual warfare. Your great enemies don't want you to hear anything that I'm about to tell you. Now, where can we look to see uh, an example of the way you have the heavenly battle being played out on earth. Well, there's probably no better place in the Bible. There may be. You can come and tell me after the sermon. But in the book of Job, we have this story of the terrible misfortunes and then the restoration of the main character, Job. But we learn from the very beginning of the book something that, that Job doesn't get to see. You get to see it because it's opened up to you in Job. You get to see that the terrible events that happened in the life of Job were not the result of freakish weather patterns, they were not the result of evil nature of the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans, even though that was the case, they were evil. They were a direct result, rather, of the conflict between God and the devil. Uh, 
And we also learn that through them, God is vindicated and glorified. That the actions of Job and what plays out in the book is actually working for the glory of God. The devil is defeated and ultimately Job grows enormously in grace and in the knowledge of God. And as we discuss spiritual warfare, remember those lessons that the book of Job teaches, namely that God is sovereign in all these things. All right, he is in control. There is a war going on, but he is in control. And when angels and demons do battle, it is never a battle between equals. God is the creator. God is the governor of the universe. The devil is powerful, but he is still only a creature. As Luther put it so well, even the devil is yet God's devil. He is in control. And while the conflict is real and even terrible, the final oh, sorry, I just swallowed that phrase. The final outcome of the war is never in doubt. And all of the individual battles that you will go through, no matter how terrible they are, they will all work out for the good of the saints. Every single one of them. Because even spiritual warfare is part of that great promise, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Now, I, I will, if I can just do a brief excursus here, it is sometimes very difficult for us to believe that all things work for good to those who are the called, those who are the Christians in the midst of the terrible spiritual battles. One example that always comes back to me is an example that occurred in Ravensbrück concentration camp between Betsy and her sister, Corey Ten Boom, who were sent there for hiding Jews. Corey was scratching at lice. Everybody in the barracks was infected with them. It was awful. And they were talking about all things. Where, you know, Betsy had this uh, unbreakable cheerfulness, this, this wonderful Christian spirit. And so Corey said to her, how about the lice? Are the lice working for our good? And she said, Corey, in essence, she said, I don't know how they are, but I know that they will because God has promised that. And as it turned out, Betsy was right because it was because of these awful lice that infested the barracks, the guards would not come in and search. And as a result, they were able to hold on to their, their, uh, their clandestine Bibles and actually hold Bible studies within the barracks unmolested by the guards. And as a result, many of the inmates came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That would not have happened without those lice. Believe it or not, sometimes even the things that hurt us the most, ultimately, they work the most for our good as well. Now, in these verses, Paul is talking about the reality of spiritual warfare, and he's applying it to what the individual believer must know and must do. But please understand that the things that I want to bring home to you today uh, is that your own personal spiritual warfare that you will go through will have far-reaching and ranging implications. Your part in that warfare and the way that you either fight it or the way you fail to fight it will have implications for your family, it will have implications for your congregation. It will have of the Lord Jesus Christ this day. You are still engaged in that spiritual warfare. The problem is the side you're on. You are on the wrong side. He who is not with me is against me, is the way Christ puts it. And you can be sure you will be used, whether or not you understand it or believe it, you can be sure if you're not Christ's, you will be used as an asset by the devil. 
Now, before anyone gets mortally offended, or uh, having said that, you know, somebody's probably already mortally offended from you know a few minutes ago. So, um, but regardless, please keep in mind that it isn't me who's making that up, who's saying you're on the side of the devil if you're not on the side of Christ. It's what Jesus Christ said. For instance, he told those who followed him in the hopes that he would be their political messiah but didn't believe he was the son of God. He said this to them in John 8:44, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He is a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. And also, remember that every Christian prior to their conversion was in exactly the same condition. That was me prior to my conversion. We all once did the will of the devil. You remember that earlier in the same letter that we've been reading through Ephesians, Paul wrote in Ephesians 2.1, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Now, as I said just a while ago, the way that you fight, or the way that you fail to fight in this war, will have much wider implications and applications. Little actions that you don't see as very important can have enormous consequences for good or evil. Wars are won on the, bound, uh, on the basis of countless little details. For instance, let me ask you this question. Kids, what did people use to get around before cars? Legs is a good answer, but that's not the one I'm looking for. If you want to go faster than legs, what did they use? Horses, very good. Now, let me ask you a related question. Do horses have tires? No, okay. But what do they put on the horse's hooves so that they can go long distances with a rider on their back? What do they put on them? Shoes, horsey shoes, that's right. And they attach the horseshoes with shoelaces. No, what do they use? Nails, they use nails, that's right. Now, what's the importance of a blacksmith expending all of his care and attention to make one little nail, making sure that it's made with due care and attention? He might have made hundreds or even thousands of those horseshoe nails, and it's very possible that he got sloppy with just a few. And some of those bad nails that he made would, with wear, break and fall out. And the shoe, as a result of missing the nail, might come off the horse. And when a horse loses its shoe, it's the equivalent of getting a flat tire. You have a lame horse suddenly. A famous poem explored how one bad nail can have disastrous consequences. I'll go ahead and read the poem. For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of a rider, the message was lost. For want of a message, the battle was lost. For want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. And all for a want of a nail. One little nail can lead to the downfall of an entire kingdom. And we can see how that idea applies to spiritual warfare as well. We are reminded every Sunday morning, I hope we are, of the importance of prayer. And then every Sunday evening as we pray as a congregation, prayer is often the means that God uses to bring things to pass. And I hope you see how, I hope you see in your own life how the prayers of individual saints can make a tremendous difference in a life or in a family or in a congregation, or in 
the life of a cat, for instance, and how the, that, that cat who is beloved by a particular person then is, uh, you know, it affects their moods and, and so on. All of those things are inter, interrelated. But how about a nation? Can one man's prayers affect a nation? What do you think? Yes. Turn with me, if you will, to Daniel. We're going to be going back to the Old Testament, obviously, to the uh, major prophets. Daniel comes just before the minor prophets. And I want you to turn to Daniel chapter 10. And we'll read there together. Starting in verse 12. No, let me back up to verse 10. Suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. Then he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I, have become, and I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I have been left alone there with the kings of Persia. And I'm going to stop reading that point. What does he say to Daniel here? He lets him know that, he is a, that he's come to him as a result of his prayers. And because of his prayers, a spiritual battle ensued along with the outcome. The prince of the kingdom of Persia that this angel sent by God speaks of is not the earthly king of Persia. This is a demon who is sent to influence all of the decisions made by the Persian Empire. And does it surprise us, therefore, that this demon would be sent to help to suspend the work of rebuilding the temple, to get the king to stop that particular work? Now, the king's son, who had issued an edict stopping work on rebuilding the temple, did he know he was doing the devil's work with his edict? Not rhetorical. No! Undoubtedly, the answer is no. In the same sense, in some sense, I should say, he felt uh, he was doing the bidding of his own God every day, just as Mohammed and the jihadis feel, felt that they were doing the bidding of Allah and waging jihad, or the Jehovah's Witnesses feel that they're doing the bidding of Jehovah as they go door to door, waking you up on Saturday mornings. Uh, but there is no God but the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And those who worshiped and served the gods of Persia, or the gods of Greece, or Allah, or the... Uh, false god of the Jehovah's Witnesses, the non-triune god, were actually serving demons. And brothers and sisters, when I tell you that, that's not my opinion. That's what scripture tells us. It's what Paul said. He says in 1 Corinthians 10, 19, what am I saying then? That an idol is anything or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. Those who worship anything but the true God are, in fact, worshiping demons. So, the sad thing is those people, those leaders who believe that they are the power, they believe that they are the center of the universe, just as, as the actual earthly prince of Persia thought he was one of the most important rulers on the face of the planet, they are all blinded to the real state of affairs. 
They are like the servant of Elisha at Dothan. You remember the, the prophet has to pray and say, open his eyes so he can see the spiritual reality and see all of the heavenly forces encamped and see that those who are with us are greater than those who are in the world. But all the leaders of this world can see are princes and armies and money and worldly power. And I, I understand that very well. I was once absolutely blind to the truth of, of spiritual things myself. I, I believed that what was going on on earth was merely what was going on on earth. I didn't see it as the outworking of a spiritual conflict. And that just as uh, the prince of the kingdom of Persia could not resist Christ and the archangel Michael, so the forces that stand behind everything that opposes Christ and his kingdom will eventually be cast down. You need to understand that. The issue of this war is not in doubt. Christ is already victorious because of his victory on the cross. And all things will eventually come to reflect that great victory. But in the meantime, there is warfare to be done. Just as, in a sense, and you know, this is an, uh, any, uh, an example that's used very often, once the Allies had secured the Normandy bridgehead, had worked their way inland, and had destroyed the German armies at the Falaise Gap, there was no possibility that the Germans could win. There simply wasn't. But tell that to the soldiers who were fighting in the Battle of the Bulge in December of 1944. Don't worry, guys, the battle's won! We're, you know, this is just a big mopping up operation. Really? I'm freezing to death and my buddies are dying all around me. You know, it's a, it seemed pretty dire at the time. And it does seem pretty dire to us as we're engaged in that kind of warfare. Well, what are the applications of this to you? Well, first, with that all in mind, take heart, Christians. You are not in this warfare of yours alone. You are not facing the forces of wickedness by yourself. They can and they will be overcome precisely because he who is with you is greater than he who is in the world. And remember that when things seem their grimmest, when you are in the, the deepest valley, when you are in the worst pit, remember that all of this, everything that is occurring in your life is actually part of this great spiritual struggle. And that Christ, your general, your commander, has promised to never leave you nor forsake you. He will stand with you. We don't stand by ourselves just as surely as the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who had the, uh, the, the image of an angel, was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. So, too, your Lord and Savior, if you are a Christian, will be with you in the midst of whatever fiery furnace the world tries to throw you into. You can stand and you can fight the good fight because you have Christ's power and you have his spirit dwelling within you. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, says Paul. Second, don't fight your battles as the men of this world fight their battles. Remember, their weapons are weak by comparison and incapable of inflicting real damage. One of the things that it, you know, drives me slightly batty is when I see Christians utterly denying the spiritual realities and thinking that we can win the war solely through political means, for instance. If we just elect the right guy, everything in America will suddenly reset and we'll be back to, to biblical worldview normality. Will that happen, brothers and sisters? No. The weapons, therefore, that we need to be taking up are more than simply the way we vote. You need to be good citizens. Yes, absolutely you do. But we need to be preaching the word. We need to be taking the sword of the spirit and using that to advance the gospel. 
I would never have agreed with anything I just said had it not been for the fact that the Lord sent messengers to me wielding the word of the Lord. And they exercised that, that wonderful general call calling me to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the Holy Spirit penetrated my heart, accompanying that calling of the word and bringing me to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, turning me about 180 degrees. So I now love the things that I once hated. That happened because of the preaching of the word. You have the most powerful weapon in the world at your disposal, the word of God. The only thing that can take a heart of stone and make it into a heart of flesh. And then you can accompany it with the most important, the most energetic, the most decisive weapon. And that is prayer. With the word and prayer, you are well armed for spiritual warfare. And we'll talk about the defensive weapons that Paul mentions as well that we're supposed to be taking up. But understand, it is not going to be through the world's methods that, that this battle is fought or won. It must be with the with the weapons of the Lord. And so you have to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil because you aren't wrestling ultimately, as Paul puts it, against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, an old man in Persia prayed, a man by the name of Daniel, and history changed you can employ exactly the same weapon to change history in your own lifetime. This is because the prayer is the means that God uses to bring about the things that he's decreed. And thirdly, finally, remember, you are engaged in warfare with a wily foe. The devil is not wise. We know that. If he was wise, he would have given up his warfare long ago and, and bowed the knee before Christ. He won't do that. But you are, you are dealing with somebody far wilier than Wiley Coyote. And you are dealing with somebody who never rests, who knows you better than you know yourself because he is always observing you. And he will use every weapon that he can against you, including people of all kinds. A little while ago, I, I encouraged somebody to, uh, to go to church. It did not surprise me at all when they reported that the morning that they woke up and they went out to their car and they were all set to go to church, that it wouldn't start. I, I have watched that particular scenario play out again and again and again. The car won't start. The kids are grumbling. Mommy, I have a tummy ache, etc. Uh, everything that can possibly go wrong goes wrong in that matter. What's going on there? That's spiritual warfare. The devil does not want you to go to church. Now, it has been my experience. This is not, I, I cannot give you an absolutely authoritative study, but all he has to do, if you can encourage somebody to go to church, all he has to do to break that determination to go to church is not every weekend for the rest of their lives stop them from somehow reaching that church. Three, three weekends is all he needs. Three weekends of disappointment. The car doesn't start. Your friends suddenly invite you to go camping. Uh, the kids have an away game. Boom, you're done. That's it. And that person will not go to church until the next person begs, pleads, and encourages them, and hopefully that person is you, to go to church and to hear the word preached. 
But understand, you are engaged every day in that kind of spiritual warfare. Understand, there are no coincidences. I could give you another story, we don't have time for it, of a pastor who went to share the gospel with a particular individual, a ruling elder with him. And throughout the time, the man's son made it absolutely impossible for the pastor to share the gospel with that family until finally... Uh, the, the man, frustrated, said to the pastor, I'm sorry, I don't know what's gotten into him. You're going to have to go. They got out, and the pastor said, I know exactly what got into that kid. The devil. He wasn't joking. It's this, it was a clear application of spiritual warfare. The devil did not want them to hear what they needed to hear in that moment. Please understand, that will happen in your life. The devil will make it easy for you to sin, and difficult for you to do the right thing at various times. He will set before you temptations. He'll set before you the counterfeits and say, come, come, this is better. And you'll be like, oh yeah, that does look good. Ah, the, the right way, that looks hard and boring. I'll go with counterfeit over here. But of course, it's, it's the honey trap. You reach for it and then suddenly, you're done. Please understand, your life is going to be spiritual warfare. Therefore, what do you have to do? Well, you have to take up that armor. You have to make use of the weapons and the armor that God puts at your disposal, not just once in a while, but every day. This morning, let me ask you a question. Did you begin the day with prayer? And I don't mean, did you come to the church and pray with the, the congregation? Did you begin the day with prayer praying for our service? Now, this is going to sound odd to you, but you know I know some people did. Do you know how I know? Because I didn't feel any sort of hesitation in preaching. The words came easily. There was, there was unction, there was zeal, all of those things. And it's always been my experience that that happens when the people of God are praying for me before I stand up to preach. And I'm not joking. This evening, I'm not sure you prayed as well. <laughs> I'm just saying, okay? But honestly, what you do, the way you exercise those things, makes a tremendous difference. And then one individual in one corporation, one family, uh, one church, can make such an impact in an area or even a nation. Brothers and sisters, let us be about the business of fighting for our Lord and Savior, our General, the Lord Jesus Christ, until he comes and relieves us. Let's go before him now. God, our gracious Father, I do thank you. I thank you for the way that you work, the way that you change us, and I pray, Lord, that you would help us to appreciate the weapons that you've placed at our disposal. I do thank you, Lord, for the grace that you show us and the way that you've called upon us. You could call legions of angels, but instead you call upon us to be about the business of fighting in spiritual warfare. Help us then to be zealous, to listen to your instructions, and to take up those weapons and wield them against our foes. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.